0: enfolding every race, nation, and language. Then you're considering Catholicism. For non-Catholics, relics are one of the weirdest things, if not the weirdest thing, about Catholicism. The word relic comes from the Latin reliquae and refers to some object, notably part of the body or clothing remaining as a memorial of a departed saint. They are kept and treasured in containers that are called reliquaries, some of which are made of glass so you can see the item inside. Every Catholic church has at least one relic inside the altar, and some churches and shrines have dozens, even hundreds. There are all sorts of examples. On my trips to Italy, I've taken people to a particular church in Rome next to the Pantheon, that has St. Catherine of Siena's body in it. But then we go north to the city of Siena in Tuscany, where her thumb and her head are on display. It's a long story as to why she's divided between the two places. But I mean, there they are, a sort of shriveled thumb and a dried up head. You step up and look at them through glass in a church, and if you're Catholic and devoted to the memory of St. Catherine, you make the sign of the cross and say a prayer. And non-Catholics look at you like you've lost your mind. I could give a thousand examples like that. But most relics, especially those that you'd see in the United States, are either tombs containing a saint's remains, or tiny slivers of bone like the size of your fingernail clippings, or maybe a lock of hair or a a bit of clothing from a long-departed saint that are kept in a little glass reliquary in a chapel somewhere in the church. Now, the Protestant reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther were not amused, and they ranted and raved about the evil of Catholic relics. And so Protestants, raised in Calvinist or Lutheran denominations, look at them with horror, like objects of the occult. Evangelicals and secularists tend just to be puzzled and turned off, thinking that Catholics are crazy and missing the whole point of Christianity, which they sort of narrowly defined as having only to do with faith or social action. So, in one of our church chats with Ed, my Protestant friend Ed finally got around to asking me about this weird Catholic fascination with relics of the saints. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. Okay,
1: so last, uh, was it fall, I took a tour of the cathedral in Grand Rapids, which was fascinating. And one of the things I learned from you, you led the tour, and one of the things I learned was that the altar, you were showing us the parts of the church, and and the the altar, you said, was required to have a relic in it. And, excuse me, that was the first time I ever thought about relics being important and I thought, really, this—well, this is a whole different thing than I thought it was. And right. I, you know, and every altar in the world has got a relic. Well, what's a relic, and how do we get so many of them? And what are the important? What's the importance of them? You know, right. and that's uh. So, so we we often we start these out with with me saying this. So I'm just going to say it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, from the outside looking in, right? Okay, it looks it has always seemed superstitious to me. Like, don't these. Things lead people to practic- practically worship the artifacts, right? And I know that's that's kind of a cheap argument because, well, people do all kinds of bad things, and you know, it's not uh, they misunderstand it or they or they intentionally mess it up or whatever. Uh, but it does seem to me like an invitation to superstition. And I mm-hmm. found a quote from John Calvin because I knew we were going to talk yeah. about this. My former <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll just burn through it real quick here. It comes in the, I'm coming in the middle of the quote. The first abuse and, as it were, the beginning of the evil was that when Christ ought to have been sought in his word, sacraments, and spiritual influences, the world, after its want— I love that. No one uses that word anymore. After no, want. its want—
0: W-O-N-T. It's cl- yes, a great word. Yeah, um, uh,
1: clung, to its garments, —clung to his garments, vests, and swaddling clothes, and thus overlooking the principal matter, followed only its accessory— it is of no use to discuss the point whether it is right or wrong to have relics, merely to keep them as precious objects without worshipping them, because experience proves that this is never the case. In other words, they always end up being worshipped. That's John Calvin's position. Um, so let's, let's, let's start out there if you would. Um, what are these things? Okay. And, why, and and why are
0: they important? So um, okay, <clears throat> I can't wait to get to Calvin on this one, but let's start with. A definition of what a relic is well let's let's do it this way in the catholic church there are three actual classifications of relics three classes There's first class relics second class relics and third class relics so let's start that might give us a, a definition a first class relic is a is either the body or parts of the body of a saint okay okay so somebody who's a Declared saint, it's their, it's their body, their skeleton, their thigh bone, right? Their skull. Right. We'll get into all these, and there you can find all of those things.
1: A, a question arises quickly in my mind. If it takes a long time to to end up a person for a person to end up being declared a saint, mm-hmm. do they keep like a? Do they keep these bodies on file so that in case they,
0: um, you know? Actually, as a matter of fact, yes. So. so- let me get to the okay, well, all right, I'm gonna get a little detour. I'm sorry, here. that was a no, little no, that's yeah. okay, no, that's okay. It's a quick quick little detour, but don't let me forget to get to the second and third class relics. Um that's what I love about these conversations, right? We, they, we, they're, they're, we go all over the place. They're rather peripatetic, right. uh, where we wander about. Ooh. But yeah, that's a fancy, fancy word. There's an etymology to that word. That was right. uh, uh said about Aristotle because when Aristotle walked about he 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 walked about while he taught. As was his want. As was his want. <laughs> and so he was peripatetic. And so this is, these are peripatetic conversations with Ed. Church chats with Ed wander. In any case, um, the bodies. So did you come with us uh, to the Detroit field trip? No, no you didn't. No. So when we went over, I took uh, a couple of months ago, uh, we took 60 people over to see some holy sites in Detroit. And one of them, uh, the tomb and a, and a center uh, for Blessed Solanus Casey. He was a, a friar. Um, a Franciscan friar uh, who lived in a monastery or a Fra- Franciscan monastery or house in Detroit um and served the poor It's kind of a legend in the Detroit Catholic community during the great depression mm-hmm. you, well, anyway long story but he is on the road to sainthood he was there's like three or four gradations right. to sainthood and anyway when as, long as casey passed away you know they buried him there in the Franciscan house mm-hmm. In a tomb. And then over the years, you know, people visit his tomb and so on and so forth. And as he progresses more and more potentially to sainthood, let's right. suppose he achieves and is canonized by right. uh, the church. Well, we know where he is. Right. And if you go back in church history, and probably the best example of this is the Apostle Peter. So when Peter was martyred, uh, he was executed in a stadium in Rome wasn't the Colosseum, but it was across the river in what is now the Vatican. And he was crucified upside down and then they chopped him down and they, his body was given to the Christians and they went across the street or just outside the stadium and they buried him in essentially a public cemetery. And everybody in Rome who was a Christian go, oh, well, that's, that's Peter. And they began to come to right. his tomb to pray and leave right. flowers and things of that nature, right? right. As, we, as we would do even today sure. with the, you know, grave of, an, of a person that was beloved. Over time, when Rome became Christian, they built a church over the top of his tomb, and that was St. Peter's Basilica. Mm-hmm. And in any case, when eventually about 100 years ago or... Nearly a hundred years ago, when that was excavated beneath St. Peter's Basilica, the current St. Peter's Basilica, you went down there in these kind of catacomb area, and there's this tomb, and the Romans were really into graffiti, and there's graffiti on it that Roman graffiti that says Peter is here. You know, somebody goes right. out to the graveyard where all the, right. the little headstones and mausoleums are, and somebody scratches Peter's tomb, right, and that was how Christians went to it. Well, that's there, and it's one of the rarest things that you can do in the entire city of Rome is to get the privilege of going down 70 feet below the altar uh, in St. Peter's Basilica and seeing the tomb of Peter and seeing the graffiti on it. And I have gotten to do that twice Mm. in my life, two of the greatest moments of my life. But the point is, is that when you look at where these first class relics came from, often they were people who were martyrs or prominent or or treasured in their life. And when they passed away, everyone knew where their tomb was and they were buried there. And then over time, as they were canonized, their relics, their bodies or parts of their bodies were valued. And in many cases, they were, and this is the part that we'll get into, I'm sure, they were, uh, how shall I say this, kind of cut up. Right. And you would send a portion of the body to one place and some of it to another so that people could have pieces of... Of the, the body. So, in any case, a first class relic in the Catholic Church is the body or portion of the body of a saint. Mm-hmm. Second class relic is clothing or personal items that belonged to a saint or that a saint touched or interacted yep. with. So, for example, if we go to Italy and we go to Assisi, and as we sit out here at the One Rolling Adventure, Compound, the uh, secret compound, compound by the secret, way. secret outdoor compound. We have a statue of Saint Francis of Assisi mm. uh, adjacent to us here. Uh, but when we go to Assisi, we not only is Saint Francis buried uh, in the basilica there, but in a room not far adjacent uh, to, from where his tomb is, there is a room that has a lot of his objects. So his tunic and his belt and his shoes are preserved. Mm-hmm. And those would be second-class relics. Probably the most famous second-class relic, if it's authentic, is the Shroud of Turin, mm-hmm. which is with the burial cloth of Jesus, purportedly. Right. But that would be an example of a second-class relic. Okay? A third-class relic is something that an object that was touched to a first class as a second class relic. and okay. this gets a little bit right. That's, they're, they're like the bottom class, right? Right. But you might say, for example, there are cases of this where someone says, hey, I've got a rosary or I've got some object, and I'm going to visit um, the tomb of so-and-so and, and be able to kind of touch the rosary or touch some object, right. or crucifix or something, to the body of the saint. Or to their bones. Right. And then there's in a sense, right, it's special. Right. And of course, you know, Protestant friends out there are going, This is so weird and so magical. But, you know, look, we all go you all go get autographs. Right. Or see your favorite, you know, um, sports star or music star or whatever and want to get a selfie or an autograph. Right. You know, and, and there's giant trade in uh, what footballs or basketballs or jerseys signed by right. Tom Brady uh and so you know those go for big dollars you got a jersey signed by tom brady then it's huge i
1: have right? a cd cover signed by brian wilson well there you go I, I built a shrine in the bottom of a drawer someplace and that's where it is
0: best thing yeah. i've got is i've got a i've got a golf hat that phil mickelson signed oh <laughs> there I met you phil go mickelson once you know after a golf tournament that i went to and watched him um and so you know i've got my phil mickelson hat in my office you know and so you know people treasure things that have been touched by someone mm-hmm. For someone to say, hey, that's just superstition, right? Obviously, we treasure objects that have been touched by someone that we value, but that's what a third-class relic is. It would be an object that was touched to a first-class relic. Make sense? Yep. So those are three classes of relics. If you were to sum those up, they are objects uh, that either have, that are the bodies of saints or are closely associated with the bodies of saints, in the case of second and third-class relics, that have been preserved. And are, they're not worship, and they're not magical items, but they're treasured, they're valued. And then there's this word in Catholicism, venerated, Mm -hmm. and Protestants always say, "Well, you're worshiping." That's not what veneration means. It means respected, Mm -hmm. deeply valued. Um, uh, When I venerate something, I show honor and respect to it. So when I go to looking at the statue of Saint Francis here next to our table, when I go to a CC. And I go to the tomb of St. Francis of Assisi and I kind of kneel down and say a prayer and I show great respect and honor to St. Francis's relics. I'm showing honor to the Lord through St. Francis and in gratitude for the things that St. Francis has done for us. And we did another episode where we talked about praying to saints. So I don't really want to cover that, but but that's what relics are. They're physical objects associated with the bodies of of saints in some way.
1: Would this example be accurate? Uh, In my own life, when my mom passed away and my dad moved out of the, out of the place they lived, the condo they lived in, uh, my mom had this hutch with all of her uh, keepsake uh, dishes and little knickknacks and things, you know, and uh, I have them all, most of them. Some of them have gone to my daughters, but. A lot of them are just sitting in a box, but I sometimes go through the box and I sit and hold the thing in my hand and I have a list of what they are. My mom was uh, smart enough to put numbers on the bottom of them Mm -hmm. on stickers. And then she made a list and said, this is where I got this and this is why I liked it. Right. And I think, you know, so, so, so my baby book. Okay. Right. Right. All right. So, uh, uh, and, and I read the names of the people who visited her in the hospital and all that. And, and some of them I know and some of them I never knew but I hold it in my hand and it, uh, I think my mom held this in her hand and my mom was an important person in my life and I respect and honor my mom. And I would, I would say to somebody, if I, if I handed you the, the baby book and you dropped it or you were like, mm-hmm. be careful with that. And that's, you know, that's, right. that's got meaning. That has meaning for me. And, right. it, and it's not that it's not my mom. I know that it's right. just, it's just, it's a way, it's a way for me to hold something in my hands that helps me to honor my
0: mother. Okay. That's a great example. And let me uh, agree with part of it and disagree okay. with part of it. So talking about your mom passing and her objects. So my mom passed away two months ago. Right. In fact, today, the, the day we're recording this is exactly 60 days. Hmm. I thought about that this morning. So it's been exactly 60 days since my mom passed. I was sitting there praying the rosary next to her in the hospice when she yep. stopped breathing. And we're we're just as a family still kind of going through the process of going through her things. For sure. You know, it just it takes time to kind of yeah. you just don't you know, obviously in a week decide. Hey, we're just going to toss out a bunch of right. own stuff. Like we've been going through her things and deciding what to keep. And you know, it's a very you know emotional process. And there are certain things we're deciding to keep because they they mom valued them and she touched them and she used them. And I know it's kind of crazy. Maybe this is a twenty first century. Sort of thing. But one of the things that I have um, sitting in my office right now is my mom's cell phone, hmm. my mom's iPhone. Yeah. And she used to text me on it, right. you know, because she lived out, of, we lived in different states, and she would text me and send me little pictures every day. And, and I was just sitting on my desk, and I like my mom, you know, touched this every right. day and right. sent me texts. So there's, you know, something that touched somebody you loved and make, reminds you of them. It, right. it uh, calls them to the mind. You feel. A sense of connection and yeah. intimacy. It anchors you to, to that person yeah. a little bit. It it does. It does. And it, it is a, anchor is a good word, I think also like a bridge, right? Like yep. this, this phone right. is the thing. I'm holding it now and my mom held it and we both held this phone. Right. And, and there's a, um, you know, it's a bridge to that person and it centers your love and value and memory of that person okay Mm -hmm. so on the one hand i agree that the relics are that but but disagree because it actually goes one step further in the case especially the first class relics it's not something that my mom touched or used it's actually my mom so it's more akin to going to the to the cemetery Mm -hmm. or if you if your loved one was was cremated and you have the remains in right. an urn, uh, on your shelf or whatnot. Uh, and you, and you look at those remains. And I know that people out here who are or listening to this, who aren't Catholic can relate to that. If you have a loved one's remains in an urn on a shelf in your room and you look at them, you go, that, that was grandpa yeah. or that was my mom or, you know, whatever. And it's not like that reminds me of them. That's actually them. That's their remains. Right. And right. you put an enormous amount of value on it. You, you couldn't imagine somebody doing something to your mom's, yes. the urn with your mom's remains in it. Right. Right? I mean, that, that's, un, you know, unconceivable that somebody right. would lose it or destroy it or spill it. Right. Or, or if your loved one was buried in a cemetery and somebody dug up their... Body or desecrated their grave. Right. I mean, th- it's not just their memory; they're actually desecrating their remains. Yeah. That's yeah. them, and it's some—it's some pe- you know—it's their body. It's a piece right. of them. So the first-class relics are actually not only bridges to the person; they're what's left of that person. Right. And this is where I think that relics—you um, know—the big idea um, from a Catholicism within Catholicism about this is that Catholicism. Is focused on the incarnation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll get around to this Calvin quote here in a second that you you shared. But Catholicism is incarnational. And what I mean by that, we've talked about this before, is that it's a sacramental religion or an incarnation religion. In other words, Catholicism treasures the material world because mm-hmm. God created the material. It was good. You know, in the days of creation, the six, six days of creation, God creates everything and says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was, I mean, it was very good. The creation was good. God likes matter. He created it. There's not a distance. Matter, the material world is not somehow inferior, diminished from—that's a heresy. That's the ancient heresy of, of Gnosticism and Marcionism and all these different isms. That were that said that the real thing that was valuable, the real world, what God really cares about, is the spiritual world, and then the material world is this diminished thing, and it's a, an ancient heresy that says what we really want to do is escape this material world to go right. up and float on a cloud, you know, and pluck a harp or something right. in in the spiritual realm. God created the material world good. And he put us in it. And I think one of the things to remember is that humans are a fusion by God's design of the material and spiritual. So let me put it this way: when you read Genesis 2, second chapter of Genesis, and you read how God created mankind, here's what it does not say. It does not say God created Adam and then gave him a body.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: What it says is that God. The dust of the earth from the ground and formed it and breathed life into it. So we are not spirits that have been given bodies. We are the dust of the earth that has had the spirit of life breathed into us. We are essentially, and that's a technical word. We were talking about Thomas Aquinas before we started the recording. Thomas Aquinas talks about what something's essence is. And our essence consists of a spiritual and material component the reason I'm saying all this is that when someone dies, it isn't like, well, that's just their body that doesn't matter. That's part of them. Right. And the entire hope of the resurrection. So it's an incarnation religion because God himself incarnated himself and took on human form and a human body. And when he died, that body was resurrected. And our whole hope and promise, Paul says in Corinthians, our entire hope is in the resurrection that we too will be resurrected. So bodies matter. Right. The body matters. And that body, whether it's your mom's body or the body of St. Peter or the body of St. whoever, is, is going to be resurrected, is going to be resurrected in the new world. And that's, that's them or the part of them that's still here. Right. So it isn't a, this macabre, weird thing to treasure and value what we still have of that person right in the hope and expectation that in the resurrection when christ returns that body will be reconstituted in the resurrected form and so we hold on to the part of them that's still here and we treasure that part of them that is still with us and that's the incarnational razor. now let's go back to that calvin quote read it again
1: okay the first abuse and as it were beginning of the evil was that when Christ ought to have been sought in his word, sacraments, and spiritual influences, the world, after its want, clung to his garments, vests, and swaddling clothes. Stop.
0: Okay. First of all, okay, again, when I said Calvin's my dude, so as I've shared in other episodes, I, um, I went to a Calvinist seminary. Right. It was actually called Calvin right. Seminary. And uh, so I was trained in Calvinism. and. Look, right away, this is Calvin being Calvin. The first evil was that men didn't, you know, I mean, tell us how you really feel, John. But the thing is, is that the first evil was that men didn't seek him as Calvin would prefer in his his word. So, in other words, intellectual pursuit and explanation and preaching and reading and preaching and and all this kind of verbal intellectual thing. But that they clung to the things that he, he left behind. Okay, so first of all, that's an argument that that's evil on Calvin's part. He can argue that it was evil that people treasured what was the right. remnants of Jesus, but but it's not clear that that's biblically evil. Where does for all of John Calvin's insistence that it's sola scriptura and only what's in the Bible, where does it say in the Bible that if if people uh, if the first community of Christians Kept Jesus's the shroud he was buried in, or right. the swaddling clothes that Mary may be treasured after he died. That 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 was evil. Does does Calvin have a uh, have a place where it says that if Mary and and the first community of Christians had his swaddling clothes, that that was a bad thing? Because I don't I don't know where that verse is. That's just Calvin making an insistence that he would prefer people read the Bible rather right. than treasure things. Secondly, it doesn't s- seem. To follow, because what happens? Jesus dies, and what was typical in a Roman crucifixion is that the body would be taken out, thrown into a mass grave, right. okay, by the centurions. The Christians asked for Christ's body; it was given to them, and then he was buried in, in, in a rich man's tomb, right? Joseph of Arimathea gave his own tomb, very wealthy and and elaborate, you know, spices and all these things were prepared, you know, for him. Uh, and they, they valued his body. And afterwards, they wanted to go out and visit his body. And then there's the thing that after Peter goes into the empty tomb and he sees the the shroud lying mm-hmm. there. Now, we don't have, uh, it's not say, it doesn't say in the Bible that they kept the shroud, but one would assume, I mean, it's only right. common sense that Peter didn't say, well, who cares about the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in? Right. He probably picked it up. We don't have any biblical evidence, and there's no proof, and I'm not arguing the Shroud of Turin right. is that, although it, it could be. But my point is that there's nothing in there that says that if Peter and the first Christians kept the shroud, that there was anything wrong with that, where right. there was anything wrong with valuing those things. And what we do know, for a fact— Is that if John Calvin thought that was evil, we know that within a generation that when the first apostles started dying and were being buried in the catacombs in these places, that the first generation of Christians, the second generation of Christians were going to the catacombs and treasuring uh, the tomb, so,
1: so Calvin is saying in a sense that uh, the early Christians just had it all messed up. They were well, just yeah. doing
0: it all wrong. Yeah, and this was part of my journey from Calvinism to Catholicism was the realization, you and I have talked about this in previous episodes, the realization when I began to actually look at the history of the church and then look at early church history, a lot of things that, whether it was Calvin or Luther, that insisted on 1,500 years later just weren't borne out by how the first generation or two of Christians lived you know and when you go back to calvin's quote about that you know who never says what calvin says in that quote any of the church fathers so you go back to the first second third century none of the right. church fathers say hey those of you who are going to the tombs of the apostles and and praying and valuing their their tombs or their bodies or whatever that's that's an evil you should just re- right. stay home and read the bible right they never say that calvin says that but right. nobody ever said that before calvin and luther right. so you know, the truth is, is that from the earliest time, the bodies, the remains of apostles and, and saints were treasured. Now, we haven't gotten yet, and we will, to the, like chopping them up into pieces and putting them in little reliquaries and carrying them right. to the churches and sticking them in altars. We'll get to that. But I just want to establish the principle that, that treasuring the remains of apostles and saints yep. is... is natural and wonderful and really n- not unusual for how we treasure the values, the, the remains of those we love.
1: Okay. So this leads me to, uh, <clears throat> as, as usual, you've answered uh, a lot of my objections already, so I'm not going to burn through them, but two, th- two questions remain for me. Why, why does the church altar have a relic? I think that's mm-hmm. an easy answer, but I want to hear what you say. And the other thing is, what is the value then could you sum up what's the value of the relics for, you know, your first, second, and third class relics? How, what value do relics have uh, for, for a Catholic, for a practicing Catholic?
0: Okay. So let's take the altar thing first. So in, in the altar, and we'll probably have to do in a whole other episode on this, but what takes place during the Mass, the sacrifice of the Mass. Um, we're going to be doing a whole lot of episodes on this podcast. I'm going to be doing a whole series on the Eucharist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um I've started it, it depending on when this episode we're recording right now. Airs, right. it may that series may have already started, but in the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ is celebrated on the altar uh, right and an altar is and who is an altar? Well, uh you know he is the perfect uh Paschal lamb, right mm-hmm. He is the sacrificial lamb, the the Passover lamb that is sacrificed for the sins of the people. Uh, that's what he calls himself. That's what they were right. called. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? Uh, he is the, the, the Lord himself provided the sacrifice. You know, this is Abraham and Isaac. This is, you know, Jesus on Good Friday. And, and we celebrate that on the altar where that lamb is sacrificed um, not re-sacrifice, so listen to the episodes about that, because right. he isn't right. re-sacrificed, that's a sort of renaissance or a, a, Pro, a reformation and sort of Protestant misunderstanding, but that we participate in that sacrifice. And so the reason why all Catholic altars, in order to be consecrated as an altar, there's actually like a cavity when an altar is made. You right. can't just throw uh, do the Mass on any table. Um, except in extraordinary circumstances, say, for like example, like a military chaplain or whatever. Right. But that's even a special case where they sometimes have like a little altar stone that they that they set right. down. Uh, maybe like, you know, if they're doing it on the hood of a Jeep or something right. in a war zone. But in general, a consecrated altar has a cavity in it and in it are put two first-class relics. They have to be first-class relics. Hmm. So they are slivers of bones. Uh, like at our parish, there's, we have a, we have a, uh, like a plaque in the wall, the sacristy, like a little certificate and it's the slivers. I mean, and when I say sliver, I mean like, like when you clip your fingernails and there's right. a tiny little sliver of fingernail that you clip off, it's like that big. It's just like right. a little sliver of bone of these two kind of medieval saints. Yep. Um, and there's a whole thing in the Vatican where those are distributed. Mm-hmm. Right. So they go, Hey, this is, Saint so and so from the year nine hundred, and right. and when somebody in the world is going to create a new church or a new altar, right. these little slivers of bone or whatever are distributed. And the reason they're in there is that two things. I think one is that there is a holiness of the church and the saints that participate in that. But there's also kind of a reference in the Book of Revelation when John sees the throne room and he sees the sacrifice of the lamb and it says belief the altar are the sacrifice, mm. the, 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 the martyrs and the saints yep. or belief that altar It's sort of a, a, a call back to that, that the, mm. the, the, what we're doing in the mass and in the Eucharist is we're seeing, we're participating what's going on in the eternal, before the eternal okay, throne sure. of God and the, the martyrs and the saints are a part of the, the altar of the sacrifice upon which, you know, Christ is there. so, that's, that's that. And when you build a new Catholic church, the, you have to get permission and all that. And the bishop right. has to consecrate the altar. And this, there's a verification and these two little things are put in like a lead capsule sort of, okay. uh, and then it's inserted in a little cavity in the altar and sealed. And that's why if you desecrate an altar, you can't just like throw it away. Right. So, if you tear down an old church or whatever, you can't just throw the altar away. It has to be unconsecrated and the relics removed. Right. Um, so that's about altars. Uh, but you asked about
1: what are what are the uh, so so what's the value? Ah, uh, sum sum up. Uh, you know, have yeah. we've talked a long time about this now, but uh, what's the value uh, of a rel- of relics sure. in a, in, a, in a Catholic's
0: okay. life? So. First of all, let's think about that word "Catholic," right? The word means universal. And if you, when you listen to this podcast, you hear me say in the intro to it um, that you know it's a church of um, spanning twenty centuries, Mm -hmm. um, you know, twenty-four time zones and uh, two hemispheres, you know, with people from every race, tribe, language, and nation. And the first value I think of the relics is that sense of community and connection. We become in It preserves that sense of community. Every time that I have visited the tomb of a saint or the relics of a saint or whatever, uh, I I feel this powerful sense of connection. Mm -hmm. And again, look, um, you know, you've been to Cleveland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you go there and you see all of the memorabilia, Elvis's guitar or, you know, whatever. They have, um, you know, Elvis's sequin. Is it like? Fat Elvis or early skinny Elvis, or whatever his sequin jumpsuit, or whatever it is. You know, and you you know, we preserve those objects because they connect us to people. Mm-hmm. Or if you go to Canton, Ohio to the the NFL Hall of Fame and you see right. all of these things, there is a sense of connectedness. And within the church, it's a sense of connectedness to all of those over the 20 centuries and 24 time zones and two hemispheres spheres from every race, tribe, language, and nation that have all been there. And I feel I've always felt whenever I visited um the tombs of saints or whatever, this in sense of connection i can't tell you how powerful it was on the two occasions i've gotten to do it to go down you know 70 feet into the into the essentially catacombs um not technically catacombs but down into the the area below the altar and to see the tomb of peter and what a a sense of connection this is peter this is peter the fisherman and and all of a sudden i feel connected to all of the generations of Christians right. that have spread throughout the world over the ages, that sense of connectedness is, I think, part of the value of relics. Mm-hmm. I think the second value is its abil- their ability as what's called a sacramental, not a sacrament, a sacramental to focus our devotion. Mm-hmm. So when I go to Assisi and I uh, kneel before the tomb of St. Francis, I'm not worshiping St. Francis. I'm worshiping right. God, but I'm paying respect just in the same way that you pay respect at your mother's grave. Right. I'm paying respect to, to what is left of St. Francis and, and, and treasuring and valuing him and focusing all of my love and devotion and respect uh, that I feel. For God and the gift and the thing of the Saint Francis and the things that he taught and accomplished, it's a, it's a focal point for that. And that's what a sacramental is point of focus for that devotion. And then the third thing is, and this is the part that I guess I suppose gets controversial, is the sense of do the, do the relics have power, any sort of power, yeah. uh, uh, to, to accomplish miracles? Now, this is where it gets weird because Catholic, because Protestants will say, well, Catholics believe in magic and they become magic objects. But let's think of what magic is. It's actually the opposite of magic. Magic, and by magic, I mean, you know, evil, occultish, right. you know, magic, is the notion that I can compel the gods mm-hmm. or the spiritual world by the use of certain physical objects. Right. So what is it? Uh, eye of you know yeah, the eye of newt or something eye of yeah. newt and you know whatever right. lips of toads or right. whatever and if i you know put the lips of the toads and the eyes of the newts and right. you know whatever and mix them with these berries and, and under the moonlight right. in a certain way in a certain kind of cup that i can sort of force somebody right. to love me or force the gods to do something that is using the physical world to sort of compel the heavenly world right yep uh the notion of the Catholic, Catholic miracles is quite actually the opposite. It's the notion that, that God uses physical things in our world. Mm-hmm. So, we've talked about this before. You know, Aaron's staff, mm-hmm. uh, the burning bush, uh, Jesus, when he wants to heal the blind man, takes some uh, dirt and spits mm-hmm. in it and makes a kind of a paste in the mud and rubs right. it in his eyes. There's always the sense that sometimes God use, uses objects, and so it's not me compelling God, it's God working mm-hmm. in response to my prayers, my devotion, Lord, you know, heal me, Lord, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is that you're praying for. The notion that God in some way sometimes uses yeah. objects as, as a focus point. And so it's not me compelling God in a magical way, but God actually reaching out to me through these points of connection. Mm-hmm. I
1: this started when we did uh, the podcast about Mary, which I think was the one we recorded before this mm-hmm. um, I started getting a, a, a much deeper sense of this i had it sort of building already, but that that everything is part of the story mm-hmm. this isn't the the the, the, the physical world isn 't an illusion it's part of the, it's part it, it's part of it yeah. you know we um we had a cat that that we had put down my wife and I Otis and, and, and no, 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 not Otis. Uh, no, Otis. Th- there was another one. His name was Presto. Oh,
0: I didn't meet and, Presto. I, I you Otis. Didn't meet
1: Presto. It was spelled P R E S T O, but it was, but it was pronounced
0: Presto because he was <laughs> <Get> annoying. <off. laughs> yeah. He
1: was annoying. He chattered and whined and, and, but you know, and when, and when we had him put down, you know, I, I, I walking into the veterinarian's office, I thought, I'm so glad this is over. Right. I hate this cat. And then I cried like a little girl, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and we were talking, my wife was talking about it with her friend and her friend said, well, my, my wife says, well, why, you know, why, uh, uh, uh I, I don't understand why I cried so hard when I was really so sad. Sorry. i I'm happy to see the cat go. And she said, he's part of the story. Right. He was part of the story. He right. was the cat you owned when, when you met and married Ed and, and, and so forth and so on. And that's, that's how I feel. I'm starting to feel about, so I can see standing at the tomb of Peter, mm-hmm. you think, this was a dude who was just a kid fishing, just mm-hmm. a guy. You know, he didn't know this was coming. He was just a guy and he mm-hmm. fished and he, he worked with his hands just like a lot of people right. do, just like I have done. Um, And he lived and he breathed and he ate and he slept and he died and he fell in love with somebody or maybe he Mm -hmm. didn't. And he had arguments with people and, and he wished for things and, and then he was, and then, and then it was done. And, uh, all these things happened to him and I am, I'm the same thing. I'm the mate of the same stuff. It's, you know, uh, the material world, it's all part of,
0: of what's going on. And God is using all of it. All of it's part of the story. You know, a hundred miles from where we sit right now as the crow flies is Chicago, mm-hmm. and in Chicago is the tomb of uh, St. Francis Cabrini, known as Mother Cabrini. She is the, she is, was, is the uh, first U.S. citizen ever canonized as a Catholic saint. Mm. She was an Italian immigrant, came over um, during the great wave of immigration, yep. you know, and, um, and she... I did a whole One Whirling Adventure video episode about her. Um, we'll link that. But, oh my goodness. I mean, she started something like two or three hundred schools, hospitals, orphanages, amazing works of mercy and, and, yeah. uh, and ministry among the poor immigrants uh, of America in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And when she passed away, uh, like, you know, all of America wept and they did a ceremony for her when she was beatified and canonized. They filled Soldier Field, Mm -hmm. uh, like filled Soldier Field Stadium with people. And anyway, her tomb is there. And one of the things going back to your thing about Presto the Cat and the story you know, when you go down to Chicago here and you go and visit her tomb, you think about all that God did. And in a sense, it's about God's story. It, it's all about all the amazing works of the kingdom of God and how it's all unfolded through the ages and how it unfolded in American history and how the, the tens of thousands of children that were cared for in those orphanages and the people in the hospitals and all the ways and that. God, through Mother Cabrini, impacted, you know, generations uh, of people and impacted and shaped this nation. And when you sit before her tomb and her yeah. remains and what is left of her, it, it, it connects you to that yeah. story and to yeah. her. And then for you to say, God, help me to be uh, as brave as she was. Help me to be as compassionate she, as she was. Help me to use the time and the treasures and the talents you've given me to to try to serve others the way she did and to say to her mother cabrini pray for me that i can i can try to follow your example and right. then if you reach out and put your hand on the tomb and hope that somehow you know that right. god not that there's magic in that but that, right. that that you know in that that point of connection that that maybe the holy spirit will you know breathe a little bit of that life into you right what uh, what a, what a beautiful thing. And I think it's, a, it's so impoverished. This is what I felt in my evangelical world life, my Protestant life, is it's such an impoverished vision of life in the kingdom. Um, you know, we have the Bible and we have praise songs and, but, and, and it isn't that we don't have people to build orphanages and do missions, but, but why not have the fullness of the incarnational value of of people and the saints and right. and their bodies and what remains in them. And what, and you
1: know, what other value is there that we don't know of yet? what's that Shakespeare quote? There are greater things in your,
0: yeah. uh, in, in, in heaven uh, and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your, your philosophy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's from Hamlet.
1: Um, I love that. I have a, we have a friend who is a, uh, a naturopath mm-hmm. and she was <clears throat> doing this thing where she was looking at my eye and, you know, well, I think we, I think your liver is, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and I thought, wouldn't it be just like God to put that together like that? Yeah. I'm not saying she's right or wrong. I don't know about that stuff, but that's what I think is yeah. that this, that's what I'm picking up from all of this yeah. is, uh, is a sense of how it's all connected. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Ed. All right. Yeah. All great. Right. Okay. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.